If you have your Bibles, won't you please turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 verse 1. And this morning we're going to be looking at the parable of the lost sheep. And um, perhaps you've heard this parable a number of times before. But I want to ask you this morning to come in with fresh eyes. And I'm praying that what the Lord would tell us today would be life-changing for us as a congregation. But also maybe if you're here for the first time or you've been here with some questions about how Jesus will relate to you this morning, I'm hoping that this parable is a remarkable life-changing point for you in your relationship with Jesus. So let's read together from verse 1. And uh, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he says, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Listen to this amazing verse, verse 7. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So, I don't know if you knew this before this morning, but the parable of the lost sheep that you possibly heard in Sunday school was actually an answer to a criticism Jesus was receiving for his ministry. And the criticism was this, that the kind of people Jesus was attracting to himself were not the kind of people that the religious status quo of the day liked to be around. Specifically here, they are called tax collectors and sinners. And uh, it's important for us to know what kind of people tax collectors were in the ancient world. Well, a tax collector was a corrupt and oppressive person, and uh, they worked for the Roman government. And so if you were a Jew and you were a tax collector, you literally were the embodiment of the enemy. You were the servant of Rome. And if there was one thing that Israel hated was being subservient to this Roman Empire. And it would have helped if these guys were honest, but they were not. Uh, we don't have the blessing of Dyer, who works for SARS with all of the computer technology and can have your pay slip and you can argue your case. These guys were able to tell you the amount you owed and you had very little ability to argue with them. And uh, they would probably give a nice lump sum of what you owed them, pockets, a portion of it. So first of all, you represent a hated government. And secondly, not only do you represent the enemy, but you also abuse your own people. Not nice people to be around. I guarantee you when the dinner invites and wedding invites were going out, the tax collectors were not on that list. 
The second kind of people that were, cre- were attracted to Jesus' ministry were sinners. And for us, we have a bit of a different understanding of what a sinner is, perhaps through our experience of hearing maybe church services in the past. But a sinner in those days were those that were kicked out of the synagogue. You were not allowed into the Jewish church. They were the kinds of people that nobody wanted to associate. No good, upstanding, moral person would want to hang out with a sinner. And uh, what shocked the religious status quo, which resembled the scribes and Pharisees, was that these very people, whom the religious people of the day tried so hard to avoid, Jesus happily invited to hear him. And not only to hear him, but he spent time with them. The criticism was that Jesus actually received them into his presence and ate with them. Now, hospitality in the ancient world was a big deal. Your table was sacred. When you had somebody around your table, you were literally inviting them into your heart, into your life. And so... They really were dumbfounded by Jesus. And uh, just to make something very clear, in verse 1 of chapter 15, it says that these people came close to Jesus to hear what he had to say. And that's very important because you might think the thing that attracted tax collectors and sinners to Jesus was the fact that he was soft. That actually when they were around him, they never felt any need to change that they found a voice in their life saying, you know, carry on what you're doing, it's fine, everything's okay. We tend to think that the way Jesus won sinners around them was being a guy that never ever addressed tough issues in people's lives. Well, I want to encourage you when you go home today to read Luke chapter 14. Can I tell you what Jesus says just before he is criticized for his ministry? He says in Luke chapter 14 verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Luke chapter 14 verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Luke chapter 14 verse 33, so therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The message of Jesus, church, is one that says when you become a Christian, if you want to become a Christ follower, everything in your life becomes his. The message of Jesus is saying if you want to become a Christ follower, my disciple, is you have to bear a cross, which means in those days that was the stigma of humiliation and that was the stigma of being despised. The cross, crucifixion, was the worst possible death you could die. But Jesus is saying if you want to follow me, you have to be willing to be shunned. Not only that, but you have to place every human relationship in subordination to me. Jesus said, if you want to become a follower of me, there must not be a single person in your life you love more. And the amazing thing of reading verse 1 of chapter 15 is Jesus has just said these things, and yet these tax collectors and sinners flock to him. Don't you find that interesting? And I want to say this morning as an interjection, this is why... In this pulpit, we never, ever, ever want us as a church to be comfortable. And you are very gracious towards me. Sometimes I talk very straight, (laughs) 
like I will be doing today. But I want to say it is in line with Christ that as his followers, he is calling us into abundant life. And what that abundant life looks like is one of surrender to receive what Jesus is wanting to give. And the real competition in our hearts is this, whether or not we will let go of what we've got in the world to embrace what Jesus has for us. And so Sunday after Sunday, my prayers, I, by the Holy Spirit's power, can argue to let, help you let go of what you're holding on to for something far greater in Jesus. And I would be failing you as a pastor, as a preacher, if you always felt comfortable with what I was saying. Because the very nature of Jesus, if you remember the second week of our Christmas series, is you cannot be neutral before him. When he speaks... He draws a line and says, here it is. Here's my words of life. Here I'm offering you salvation, but the salvation is different to what you know. In actual fact, the way that you're going to enter into it is to change your mind about everything you did know. And so this morning, as I'm preaching, you might be a bit offended, but I want to say, let it happen. Let it soak into your soul, because you know what? These are the words of life, and what Jesus is offering you is far deeper, far more eternal than what you know. What we know by nature falls far below what Jesus is offering by the Spirit. And I want to say to you this morning, there is a place in this building for you to hear the words of Jesus. And they can come and be words that confront your life and go, wow, I've never seen it that way before. And that makes you feel uncomfortable. But I want to tell you what, when the presence of Jesus is here, He's able to say amazing things that challenge us, yet make us not feel rejected. And the crux about Jesus was this, was this criticism of the Pharisees who were the religious people of the day. They were the churchgoers. They were the ones who knew their Bibles. The criticism was this man receives sinners, the ones that we don't receive outside of the synagogue, and he eats with them. What won these people over was what they didn't find, find with the religious people of their day. They found Jesus speaking words that challenged them to the core. But when they were with him, they felt such graciousness. Jesus never humiliated anybody. And not only did they feel graciousness where they were allowed to approach his presence, but actually... Jesus made an effort to go into their world. And so we see where the Pharisees and scribes, they're at a loss because their, their policy is reject until they change. Jesus' policy is, let me come into your world first. And who you are does not intimidate me. Now I want to say this morning, before diving into the nitty-gritty of this parable, what do people feel in your presence? Do they sense a Christ-like openness? Or do they sense rejection? And the point I want to make here is this. How we believe God receives us shapes us as people. Where your confidence lies in terms of how God receives you as a person 
shapes the way people feel around you. Give me a moment to explain this, because this is very important. The Pharisees' policy was they were offended that Jesus received sinners because their policy was the sinner had to change before they were to be received. That was their policy. Okay? So what they would do is, listen to this carefully, they would use tactics of intimidation and they would be threatening. They would not allow you into the church building. You see, we're much nicer than they are. <laughs> I'm just joking. Uh, they would not allow you into the church service they would not eat in your home. They would shun you not only in their religious gatherings, but in their actual society. If you were at the market, they wouldn't speak to you. If, you, they, if they invited you, if you invited them around for dinner, they wouldn't attend. You see, what they believed was that sinners had to change before God would receive them. Now, this was a side effect of the way they believed God was receiving them. I'll say it again. That attitude in them was a side effect of what they believed, the way God was receiving them. And you know what they believed? They believed God was receiving them because they were getting it right. And so they were so careful to obey all the law, written and spoken. They were so careful to be so obedient to God, but in this desire to be obedient, what it did was they felt because they were getting it right, man, God was accepting them. And so if you had to look at the Pharisees, what stumped them about Jesus was the fact that Jesus didn't pay them special attention. They believed because they were the real spiritual elites of Israel, they had the inside track on God. If there was one place God was going to speak, if there was one place God had his eye upon, or one group of people, it was the Pharisees. They believed they were special in the sight of God because of their obedience. And so they believed it was right. If you had gone to a Pharisee in Jesus' day and said, the way you are treating these people is wrong, which is actually how Jesus made them feel, they would say, no, we are justified, we are right, because don't you know? You have to change before God will receive you. And these people refuse to change, so obviously God is not receiving them. And because God is not receiving them, we don't have to. Are you still with me? And this is what happens. When we base our confidence on how well we are doing before God and our performance as the confidence that God receives us, it produces an attitude in us towards people that creates an atmosphere around us that they pick up on. And the attitude or atmosphere is this. Because we're basing our confidence in on, on how well we're doing before God, we are getting it right. Not so? So when we look at somebody who is not like us, our natural instinct is to say, you're getting it wrong. And the result is this is we tend to elevate ourselves and say, look how well we're doing. Look how badly you're doing. And so there's this condescension that comes into the person who puts his trust in how well he's doing before God. Secondly, it makes us hypercritical because remember, if your confidence before God is based on your performance, you're only always assessing performance. You're always self-critiquing yourself. Or you're critiquing the person next to you because, don't you know, in a race, you only know if you're ahead 
if the other person's behind. And so what starts to happen is, not only do we begin to feel we're getting it right, but we begin to be hypercritical of others. We begin to assess their performance because we're really so concerned about ours. The other thing that happens is this, is we begin to boast about our achievement because fundamentally, if our relationship with God is based on how well we're doing well, then how we're achieving is really important. And you know what's so off-putting about a Christian that lives like this is they will tell you how much they pray, how God answered. They will say, oh, I wouldn't do a thing like that. In their presence, they want to publicize in front of others their own godliness because before God, their performance is what matters. And if they can impress others, well, surely God will be impressed. The last is this, is we begin to feel that we have the moral high ground. And in actual fact, unless you become like us, that's the attitude, unless you make the grade, you can't be a part of what God wants to do. And that creates in us this separation, a harshness in our presence. People feel what's really at the root of what I'm talking about, self-righteousness. People feel our arrogance. And so, there's an English word that summarizes this so well. It's called smugness. Any of you heard of the word smug? Smugness is when somebody comes into your presence, it's having this self-righteous feeling of, I'm so right. You're so wrong. I'm so good. You're so bad. I'm on the inside track. You're on the outside camp. If God's going to deal with somebody, he's going to deal with me because look how hard I'm trying. Look how pathetically you're doing. Is that what people feel in your presence? Because what Jesus portrayed was the exact opposite. Jesus said his posture and his message was this, is that we need the grace of God. And you want to know what the grace of God is summarized? It's God's willing to come towards us even when we don't deserve it. I say it again. You know what grace is? God's willingness to come to you even when you don't deserve it. It is a willingness to relate outside of performance. And when John in chapter 1 writes about Jesus, he says, out of Jesus, out of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, which is this, the very fact that Jesus Christ came into the world was grace is that his audience didn't receive him, didn't beg God. He sent Christ anyway. And the way that God was choosing to relate to the world was whilst the world in its sinfulness was far from God's standards, he sends Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for you and me. And the danger is this, is that when we as Christians begin to live for a long time in this walk, we begin to learn the ropes. 
we begin to learn, man, how to pray. We get to know a bit more about our Bibles. We begin to know the language that is used in church. When the preacher in the beginning was so confusing for you because he would use words were maybe a bit confusing. For you more and more, you're great. I know what he's saying. I understand that. Yes, yes, yes. What begins to happen is this, is there is a risk that we begin to shift from grace towards how well we are doing, which is called self-righteousness. And what that does in us, church, and the reason why I'm laboring is it, it, it affects what people feel when they come into this building, is if we as a church begin to trust increasingly on how well we are doing and leave Jesus behind us, it warps us on the inside. What people begin to feel around us is not this gospel of grace saying, hey, Christ is willing to know you, not based on where you are right now, but based on his decision to come close to you. Instead of them feeling this willingness of God to receive, what they feel is a tangible coldness of rejection. And the worst thing I want to say for a person trying to find Jesus is not what the preacher is saying that's offensive from the front from time to time. It is the sense they get from us as a community that they don't belong. That somehow they have to change and meet certain criteria to be in. I want to say this morning, let that never, ever be the case at the Ridge. Let this door be wide open, not only physically, but in our hearts, because we as a people are trusting never, ever, ever in how well we are doing. But when people ask us, Ridges, what is your hope of getting into heaven? What is your hope of salvation? It is Christ and Christ alone. We build our lives on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We do not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. But if we shift from that, people feel it. And you want to know where self-righteousness starts in the Christian? It's the moment we take our eyes off Jesus. The second we feel set in our performance and we start to move from Christ to ourselves, that's when this gnarled, warped spirit of self-righteousness begins to grow in us. And what people sense is no longer the grace of Jesus operating in us. What they sense is the legalistic spirit of a Pharisee and it is repugnant. It is repulsive to the world. You know what attracts people to Jesus? Is this message that God is willing to come close to us in our weakness. That his grace can cope with failure. And that he's the God of the second chance. And so this morning, I labor this because This parable calls the church to continually reorientate itself to the heart of God. And the heart of God is this. His eye is not on the 99. His eye is on the lost sheep. 
and he goes to labor this. Jesus says, I want to explain my ministry to you. My ministry, Pharisees and the world, is not to come to those who are in the fold already, the 99. My ministry is to be the one to seek and save the lost. And there was a lot of reasons that Jesus uses in this parable to explain this. The first is, don't you think 99 sheep is a big responsibility? If I was a shepherd of 99 sheep and one goes off, I would use the excuse of saying, I have got 99 to look after. That one can fend for himself, not so? Secondly, they weren't in a nice little crawl where they were able to have a, a nice fence surrounding them, protecting them from wolves. No, no, Jesus said these 99 sheep were in the wilderness and he left them in the wilderness to go after the one sheep. Thirdly, Jesus says, you know how important these people are to me that are outside the fold is that when he's looking for them, he doesn't just stop after the first search. He searches until he finds that lost sheep. In other words, Jesus says is that he is determined to go after the ones that are outside the fold. And these Pharisees were going, you know what? God's eyes on the 99. Jesus is saying, you know what? He's on the lost sheep. And this morning, I want to say to you, if you feel like the underdog, if you feel like the down and out, if you feel like that person that you know, there is no way, you're part of the 99 this morning. And perhaps you've come to church this morning as a start to the new year and maybe to associate with the 99 flock in order to get God's attention. I want to say to you, if you are hurting this morning, if you are struggling in sin, if you are feeling far from God, I want to say his eyes on you this morning. You've got his attention. And for those of us this morning that are praying for children and are far from God, Friends, family members, colleagues, I want to say to you this morning, you've got the heart of God behind you, his eyes on them. And what really it means is this, this gospel of grace, is me, it means that the shepherd has to go after the sheep because the sheep is lost. And this morning... I want to quickly unpack what does it mean to be lost. And maybe you've heard that word before. Maybe you've gone, you know, I've heard Christians say, preachers say, man, Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. What does lost really mean? Well, a lost sheep is a good way to describe it because in Isaiah 53 it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. And the first is this, is that a lost sheep resembling a lost person, there is something seriously wrong because a, a sheep is a herding animal by instinct. Owen works with, with uh, animals. Any, any farmers here? Any farmers here this morning? Pardon? Only you. All right. Well, the first thing is this, is when a sheep is lost, something's seriously wrong because by nature, the sheep wants to be with the rest of the sheep. And so being lost means that we are operating outside of the way we were designed to. Secondly, sheep have a tendency to wonder. They always think the grass is greener on the other side. And really, a person who is lost is just like that. Is this life holds out certain promises. 
And a person who's lost chases after one promise, after one opportunity, after one pasture over and over again. But when they get there, they find, man, the grass is not so green as what they had hoped. And what happens is certain decisions are made as time goes by that the idea that a person has of their life changes. And a person who's lost is somebody who has regrets because initially they wanted to do something with their life or be somebody, but because they were chasing after what this life offered and made some decisions that they weren't so happy about along the way, what happens is this, is they find themselves in a place in life Where they don't know where they, how they got there, or if they did, they're not actually too sure where to go from there. And so a person who's lost is a person who feels that life is meaningless, is aimless. Looked at all the world, every green pasture, but nothing satisfies. The time is still empty. And in actual fact, what's happened is they've realized a deep loneliness in life. That the world can be full of billions of people, but there is this loneliness in a person's soul that nobody can fill. And lastly, a person who's lost is a person who has a deep fear of the future. That sheep that was cast out or wandered far from the flock, that sheep was open to wolves. Night possibly was coming. Didn't know how it was going to turn out. I want to say somebody who is lost is somebody who has no certainty of the future and feels vulnerable to the environment that they live in. They have no confidence in anything or in anything that everything is going to work out fine. They have no idea what their destiny is going to be or where they're going to land up. And deep down inside, a person who is lost can't seem to answer one question. You know what that one question is? Is what will happen to me when I die? What will happen to me the moment I stop breathing this side of the grave? And friends, the Christian message, the good news of Jesus says, you are not ready to live until you're ready to die. That a Christian is somebody who is certain about the future, not the details, but the outcome. A Christian is somebody who is able to say, I know whom I've believed, and my hope is in Christ. And so if you had to ask me, Matt Johnson, what is your hope of getting into heaven one day? Or what is your hope that no matter what happens in this world, you're going to be okay? My hope is this, that Christ has said it, and Christ has died, and therefore I'm certain. I want to ask you today, the number one question you have to answer your, for yourself this morning is, where are you going to go when you die? Are you ready to die? Does death, um, f- are you afraid of it? Are you scared of death? Are you certain that when you leave this place, no matter what happens, you know where you're going? That is a person who is saved, is somebody who knows whom they're trusting and believing. And I want to ask you this morning, are you ready to die? If you're not ready to die, you're not ready to live. And you might be saying, well, 
I don't want to die and be uncertain. I don't want to go to a place where I'm not sure how it's going to pan out. Well, I want to say this morning, I'm going to close with this. Is the whole story is to encourage you this morning that if you feel you're not part of the 99 sheep, you have every hope that if you will look to Jesus this morning with a desire to share in the same confidence we as Christians have, he'll receive you. Jesus won't throw up your past. He won't be harsh towards you. He won't be ashamed of you. He won't expect too much to you. You know what he does when he finds the sheep? He puts the sheep on his shoulders. And this morning, I want to say to you, you might be worried that if you give your life to Jesus, he'll ask too much of you. He'll expect too much of you. You might feel, I can't receive Jesus this morning because I don't have enough knowledge. I don't know my Bible enough. You might feel he'll ask you to go somewhere or do something that you might feel is beyond what you're capable of. When Jesus saw the sheep, the good shepherd saw the sheep, the sheep was dehydrated most likely, injured, caught, stuck. What does he do? doesn't say that sheep, you've got to sort yourself out. Come on, jump a bit higher. That's it. You're in that pit. Come on, here we go. Try again. Try again, you stupid sheep. No, no, no. You know what he does? He's merciful. He reaches down. He picks up that sheep. He doesn't even make that sheep walk all the way back. He carries it. Friends, that's the kind of shepherd Jesus is promising to be to you today. That's the kind of comfort a Christian has. That even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil. For his rod and his staff is with us. We have a shepherd that promises to lead us into still quiet waters, into pastures that restore our soul. He's a good shepherd. This morning I want to ask you, is there any reason why you don't want him? Because he requires one thing of you. Jesus says, heaven is waiting for this moment. Is that it's the moment when a sinner, a person that knows, man, they're outside of what God wants him to be. They're outside of being a believer, of a person who's come and put their hope and confidence in Jesus. Jesus says, heaven waits for the moment that a sinner repents. What that means is all he's requiring of you this morning is to acknowledge who you are, that you need Jesus, that you've wandered, and that that wandering has been against the shepherd's will, that the direction of your life has been in the exact opposite of what he's asked of you, that your behavior has not been what he's required of you, and the Bible calls that sin. You just be totally honest about who you are first, Secondly, is you come to Jesus and you acknowledge who he is, that he's your Lord and Savior, and that the blood that was shed on the cross, his death was meant to be your own, and that you ask his death to take your place.
And so this morning, you have to change your mind. You have to repent. You have to choose Jesus. You have to come towards him and say, Lord, I have been sinful and I need you to rescue me. He has to become your savior. And if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to ask him and you're willing to say, Lord, I don't want any other shepherds but you. He'll pick you up. He'll make you his own. He'll put you in the flock of the 99. And you know what will happen in heaven? Is that the whole of heaven will throw the biggest party ever. It says in verse 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And this morning... Heaven is waiting for you. I want to ask, will you come? Let's pray. I want to ask you this morning, where are you in the story? Are you amongst the 99? Or are you the sheep that's far from Jesus? This morning, I want to ask you, would you let him be your good shepherd? Jesus is not asking you to fix yourself before you come. He's not asking you to be something you're not. He's not even asking you to try and uh, put on a face before him. He's come this morning after you and he sees you as you are. And Lord Jesus, we don't want to leave this place without a certainty of knowing we have a hope and a future in you. And so Lord, I want to ask that uh, you would call us out into a certainty into an assurance, Lord, that we have received you as our Lord and Savior. And that, Lord, this morning, the comfort of being a Christian is having the comfort of having a good shepherd. And so, Lord, even for us as a church, I pray that, Jesus, our eyes would not just be on inward 99 sheep focus, that our eyes, Lord, would be open towards the one that your eyes are on when we leave this place. For those of us that have prayed for years for those to come to salvation, we ask that God will give us fresh heart this morning to do so. And Lord, we are asking that you would shape us as a congregation, that when people come into this place, they would sense that the grace of Christ is available here. That Lord, you receive sinners. You don't receive saints who fix themselves up. Lord, you receive those who are trusting in you as their only hope of salvation. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.